In this God and Sexuality series, we seek to explore the intent of God's design in this wonderful gift of life and sexuality, knowing that the ways of God in all things lead to flourishing, life, joy, and healing. In a time of Tinder, hookup culture, porn, gender fluidity, same-sex attraction, HBO, and the politicization of sex and all the gender debates, there are numerous voices clamoring to be heard on these topics. But at a deeper and more personal level, we know that our sexuality has incredible power to form us, power to bring health and flourishing, or pain and destruction. We are not looking to pick a fight with anyone, but rather show that any difference we may have most probably doesn't start with our beliefs on sexuality, but rather our beliefs on God and His intent and design for this world and its people. We want to create a place for all people to bring their whole lives, including their sexuality, to Jesus and let Him do the restoring work He needs to do. Now we will listen to the next installment of the God and Sexuality series. Thank you, Nick. Uh, real privilege to be with you guys. I don't take it lightly to um, stand in front of you and to be unpacking God's word. Um, we are looking at God and sexuality, in particular the area of marriage. So I just wanted to quickly introduce you to the lady I'm married to, my wife, Leanne. There's a photo of us on holiday with our three kids. You don't care about my kids, so I won't tell you what I told the AM. But what I will, uh, to try to give you a little snapshot about um, us as a family, I was still will always be a Rhonda Bosch boy, and I married, I married a Herschel girl. That's all you need to know about me. I stretched, I stretched from my government school up, up to the private educated, and I managed, I managed to get there. So you, you, you're listening to us. My wife isn't here, which always gives me great freedom to talk about marriage. I feel excited. Um, and really, it is a privilege to be here. On our one-year anniversary, we joined the leadership team here in Rondebosch. And a couple of months later, we were invited to lead the Rondebosch PM congregation. That was 2010. And we had delightful years here. We bought a home behind the church. We had our future in the suburb. And God had other plans. Called us to lead in Seapoint. And we've been there for the last four and a half years. A great adventure. God has been so good to us. Right now, if you go to Seapoint, you'll see they're widening the roads around the stadium. Why? Formula E is coming. And, uh, and Formula One will come shortly. They're gonna give it to the Joe Burgers for a while and then we'll get it. On the streets, on the streets of Cape Town, guys, ripping past Putt-Putt. It's gonna be insane. Don't go to Australia. Don't go to Europe. It's happening in Cape Town. Stick around. It's gonna be exciting. I'm a little bit worried that some of you had a long weekend and weren't here to listen to part two of God and Sexuality. Ian Kruger bravely stood up and spoke about porn masturbation in front of his parents. <laughs> Unbelievable performance. <laughs> and he essentially said there's two things that we need to be careful about. The one is when we first find out about sexual desires, we just notice there's something inside of us. We can fear that. And we fear that and we respond out of fear and we go, oh, I need some rules, I need some, some constraints, I need some, some um, moral standards and I'm gonna add my willpower to that and the equation kind of works out, moral standards plus willpower equals, we think holiness, but it often doesn't lead to holiness, it actually leads to failure. And so having feared these sexual desires and trying to understand them, we then pivot out of fear and we go, that, that, was a, that was a mistake. I'm rather gonna follow my desires. And that's the equation we have. We have an understanding that actually 
when I have a desire, I'm just gonna follow through. As long as the other person consents to it, and then we'll experience unbelievable freedom. It is gonna be incredible not to fear this desire, but to just follow it. And that was the 60s, the 70s, but the data's come back now 40, 50 years later, and it's saying, oh, this didn't actually result in freedom. It's resulted in a lot of discontentment, a lot of unhappiness, and the highest anxiety levels we've ever seen. So we've tried fearing our sexual desires. We've tried following our sexual desires. Does Jesus have something different? And the answer, I think, is yes. He's got something different for us. And the question we're asking each other is, who are we becoming as we steward these desires that do come? These desires that are part of us. And these desires were created by God. They have purpose. You're not a coincidence. You were created, male and female, in the image of God. And these desires teach us something about God. It changes the whole perspective if we know that God is the God of the orgasm. It wasn't Satan's idea, it was his idea. And how does that shape our understanding about this kind of God? So we're gonna be looking at how Jesus wants to teach us how to form ourselves and to, and to have these sexual desires expressed in a way that leads to flourishing and true freedom. And so we're gonna look at the vision that, that Jesus has for us in marriage, which is the one legitimate place to give full expression to these sexual desires. Look at some of the practices and then finally in response, we're gonna to come to the communion meal and really invite the Holy Spirit to continue that work of renovation as we all come under Christ's leadership. And I've said there, I'm trusting for restoration because who in this room has not been broken in some way in this area of their lives? But maybe more than restoration, how about transformation that we, we have new appetites and new desires placed in us by the Holy Spirit? So that's the focus for today. And I know that there are many different people in the evening compared to the morning. And I just want to actually really, this is going to help me. So men, I need you right now to help. If you are single right now, can you stand up? If you're not married, that's the criteria. Any unmarried men, please stand up. It just is helpful for me to know where to focus. Attention. Okay. Okay, men, look at me. Thank you for identifying yourselves. And ladies, they do exist. Thank you. Okay, so we've established something important right up front. I am gonna be talking a little bit to you guys, but truthfully, next week is, is about singleness in particular, so make sure you're here for it. But I wanna ask you to lean in because this is a vision that you might not be living in next, but it's gonna shape you. There might be some of you that are engaged, just sitting here leaning in going, oh, this is something we can mean to. I wanna show you on the website, uh, Bosch is great. They run pre-marriage courses. There's one coming up in November, December. I highly recommend this. Back in the day, I think up to half the couples there were not even common grounders. They were coming from all over the city saying, we know this is a monumental step we're taking, but no one's helping us. Can you help us? And we as a church, we say, sure, come listen to what following Christ in marriage would look like. And so please be warmly invited to pre-marriage. And there might then be the people that weren't standing earlier, those that are married in the room as well. And I want to give you some practices and some ways in which you can sustain your marriage, but even more than sustain, really transform it as you deeply understand the unity Christ has for you. There might be some people here who are divorced. You've experienced one of the most painful things you could ever go through. And you're sitting here maybe still fresh from the wounds, or maybe it's way in the past and you're wanting to start a new season in your life. Regardless of who you are here tonight, the truth is, whether you've experienced that you've probably had family members or friends who've experienced all of these different things that I'm discussing, who hasn't been affected by sexual formation, gone astray. 
And the good news is we don't just apply this in our own individual relationships. We apply the wisdom as a, as a family. And that's a metaphor that comes up over and over again in Scripture. We're brothers and sisters. We're part of the same family. And as we understand what God's design is for marriage as a family, we can come alongside one another and support each other and care for each other and understand each other better. And so please, come chat afterwards. Chat in life groups. Message your questions to the Q&A. We're doing this series over, over really almost two months because we want to marinate in this and saturate ourselves in these important issues. Uh, before I get totally stuck in, can I just say that Bosch PM, you guys have got such a, such a mandate from God to, to follow him in this decision decade of your life. So I remember just thinking about that often when I was leading. I was lecturing up at GCT and I could only give a few hours and we had a whole team here. But I remember thinking, so much happens in this decade of your life. So much. What you're gonna kind of study, who you're gonna marry, kind of so much gets shaped in this place. And I really wanna just remind you um, of just the privilege that coming before God and, and hearing his wisdom at this time can set you up for decades to come. I don't want to embarrass them too much, but the Lindley brothers are here. I used to babysit those guys because my wife babysat them and I wanted to show her I was husband material. So I rolled around in the garden with Will Lindley. He's now with Matthew Moll in Europe touring. I was using that guy's bait to get my wife. I want to tell you, it went like this. It went like this, 15 years. But things were shaped here, which, which still counts. So you might be sitting there going, ah, oh, I can defer this. No, now is the moment God wants to speak to you tonight. So here's the vision. Here's the vision. Jesus says marriage is between a man and a woman. They leave and they cleave. They leave their old families and they start a new family. And it is deep unity they offer. Not just partnership, deep unity. And the mystery is this. It's not just about them. It's about him. It's about Christ and the church. Marriage is about this bigger story about the God who created us. Marriage is about him and his relationship with us. But before looking at what Christ's vision for the marriage is, I want to quickly up to bring you up to date with what South Africa's vision for marriage is. We have one of the most liberal constitutions in the world, and we have got quite interesting things happening with our marriage act at the moment. It's a green paper at the moment that they want to turn into white paper probably early next year because there's some changes coming. Change number one, under our current constitution, polygamy is allowed, but now polyandry is also going to be allowed. So woman, you can marry multiple men. The logic of this is quite solid in a constitution. All are equal before the law. So if men can marry multiple women, women should be allowed to marry multiple men. Under our current marriage act, people under the age of 18 can get married. Under our new marriage act, that's coming under review and they say, no, you must be over 18 to get married. But largely what's happening is people are saying, this is something we can shape and we can marry any combination of people across gender lines because that is how we've defined marriage. It's, it's up for grabs. And the truth is that most people are saying, you know what, Paul, as long as it makes someone happy or, or whoever's doing it happy, as long as they're consensual and they're enjoying themselves, let people do what they want to do. That, I think, is largely the view around marriage in our country. Uh, some stats you might not be aware of, but Stats SA keeps track of things in South Africa. Have a look at this. Most men will now marry for the first time when they're 37. 
which is getting older and older and older. A woman, it um, is up to 33. So that's the average age that women in Africa are having um, their first marriage. And because it's taking so long, generally, to get married, I think the theory is most people are saying, I wanna get my career down, and then once I'm financially independent, then I'll look for a marriage partner. Because of that journey, most people are saying, it's totally unrealistic to wait that long to follow Jesus' teaching on marriage. And so I'm gonna give expression to my sexual desires, and, and hopefully I'll, I'll kind of be a bit more focused later, but for now, it's unrealistic not to expect this. And what is a crisis in our country, and I don't think regardless if you're a guest here, you come here regularly, I think you're recognized as a crisis. And it's, it's obvious when you say it is, sex between a man and a woman results in children, or can result in children. And in South Africa, we have a crisis of fatherlessness. We have many children that don't know their parents. Interestingly, in the United Nations, they did a survey where they looked around the world at the number of people under the age of 15, so kids under the age of 15, who live with both parents. How many kids under the age of 15 do you think live with both parents? United Nations gathered the data, they reckon the number is 75%. In South Africa, that number is 32%. And a full fifth, 20% of kids in our country do not live with either parents. They're raised by aunts and uncles or grandparents. This is a crisis by any measure. And it leaks out in our violence, in our full population of jail, our crime stats. We look for all kinds of things, but really I'd say this is at the center of it. A fatherlessness which has taken hold. A direct result of a kind of attitude that I, don't, I think has got a little confused around the proper place for expressing sexual desire which results in children and the proper care for those children. That might seem a little out there, like, Paul, I'm not thinking multiple wives and I'm certainly not waiting to 37 and I, like, you, you kind of like, I don't, I don't quite relate to this right now, so maybe I'll share a little vulnerably from my side. I'll find myself in any one day thinking, marriage should be a lot more fun than this, man. It should be a playground. Like, why is this so hard? Like, I, I, I didn't sign up for this. Marriage should be about pleasure. The next moment I'm thinking, oh, marriage. You know when it's really at its best? It's when you're getting the discounts, when you're working the system. You got like someone who takes care of this insurance and I'll do the telco and then data and then I will get maximum discovery points or whatever vitality thing. You're like, oh, now our marriage is singing. And the next moment I'm thinking, Yo, you know what marriage is? Marriage is like a safe place in a stormy sea. I come home and I know there's someone who loves me. You know, it's so amazing. And that's why when my wife goes, hey, that wasn't cool. I go, what? You were meant to be my safe place. How can you, how can you criticize me? And then in the same day, you can say, you know what, I'm sick and tired of noticing. I say one thing, but I do something else. I've been to so many weddings where this got said and this got lived out. And I'm actually so depleted or cynical or cold that I kind of go, man, what's the point anymore? Like this marriage thing's broken. It just seems too hard. Now that can be happening because there's just so many multiple visions all the time around what marriage is. Is it a playground? Is it about pleasure? Is it therapy? Is it, is it a safe harbor? Is it just a convenient way to... Save rent, like what is this? <laughs> what is Jesus' vision? And now remember, Jesus was someone who wasn't scared of subversive thinking. I mean, he, he got killed because he was prepared to overthrow the existing power structures in place. He didn't get killed because he was a nice guy, he was misunderstood. They understood what he was teaching and they realized how dangerous it was. He was introducing the upside down kingdom. And they would often poke him and provoke him and try to find out, let's get him to say something controversial. And they'd try and find out what he had to say. And Ryan spoke about this the first week of the series in Matthew 19, where they were trying to get him around this whole issue of divorce. And this is what Jesus says in verse four. When they're asking about marriage, Jesus says, you 
Oh, sorry, Jesus said, he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Very interesting. Jesus answers their question around marriage by telling a story. But first he said, haven't you read? Haven't you gone back to Genesis? It's kind of a little bit of sass involved here because it's like page one, guys, literally page one of the Bible. Like there it is. Did you not read that? Did you not pay attention to that? There's a creator and he's revealing himself by making male and female. There's something about God woven in our differences that we find out about. And then scandalously, he joins them together in this beautiful difference, this deep oneness. That's what marriage is about. He created night and day, land and sea. And he, and he shows how these two different things can somehow be combined in beautiful creation. But the thing about male and female, when they come together, out pop other little males and females. And the story goes on. It's incredible. The creativity, the difference. If you look around the room, you go, whoa, wonder what their parents look like and their parents and their parents. It's unbelievable, the combinations, every fingerprint different. God's saying, I'm doing this to reveal a little bit about who I am. That's what Jesus is teaching around marriage, saying that's the way in which this mandate to fill the earth is lived out. That's the picture on the puzzle box that we're seeing, the vision of what's going on, which helps us figure out our piece in it. Now, I still teach every now and again at the Graduate School of Business. I teach finance, and it can get quite awkward sometimes because I'm introduced as the pastor, and everyone's like, but he's here to teach finance. And then they're like, oh, we see you. We see you, the pastor finance guy. You know, they're like, we know what you're up to, buddy. And invariably, when people chat during the breaks or times, they'll say to me, hey, What's your view on gay marriage? And it's kind of the question which is, which is used as a way of saying, are you cool or are you a bigot? It's kind of like, let's just find out. Which one of, which one of you Christians are you? are you? Are you a Fermine or are you a bigot? That's a very interesting question. And I say to them, hey man, you've spoken about something incredibly personal. You're talking about how people choose to steward their sexuality, the, the, the sexual desires they feel, that we all feel. And you know how, how incredibly sensitive we all are in this area of our lives. And so you've asked a very personal question and I'm prepared to answer it, but here's what we need. We need time. You can't put that in a little box and have a little snapshot. You need to talk about it. So if you've got time, let's make time to really have a good conversation. Besides time, we need another thing. We need to stay open to each other. We need to hear from one another and we need to understand each other's lives and the stories we believe about ultimate reality, about whether there's a God or not. Because really, that's the major point of departure. Because if there isn't a God, then Yes, we're free to invent ourselves and change our identities and try and find meaning on this little ball that's circling around a massive giant sun and then we die. We're up, it's up for grabs, whatever we wanna do, but ah, oh, if there is a God and there's ultimate reality and there's eternity and there's purpose and there's meaning and there's design, well, then there's a whole nother conversation we can have. But if you don't buy into that premise, if you don't believe Jesus is God with us, there's no there's no obligation from my side to try and insist on a standard that I'm living to purely because I'm being renovated from the inside out by the Holy Spirit alive in me that's changing my desires. So I need time and I need to share my story about how I believe the world hangs together. And in those conversations, it's been so liberating to say to people, you know what? 
I had an amazing childhood, amazing parents. I went to a great school down the road. I married a Hershey girl. You know, I always bring that in. And then, but I say, I, I, I had to come under Jesus' authority when it came to my sexual desires. Because like most boys going through school, I had the swimsuit edition going. I saw ladies as conquests, as trophies. I had an at a sexual appetite that needed to be coming under his leadership. Quite frankly, I was a pervert in the making that needed to be changed from the inside out. And so I'm not saying, hey, little subgroup, you need to change. I'm saying, everybody, we need to change. We all have been abused or been abusers in this area and we need to bring it in the light under his leadership to be shaped by him. The truth of God transforming us from the inside out teaching us the best way to give expression to our desires and to create a safe place for children to be raised and communities to be lived out and for families to be cherished. Brothers and sisters together doing it, male and female, leaving and cleaving, two becoming one, God joining it together. That's how I see it. What a vision that Jesus has for us. But if you don't believe in Jesus, that's the point of departure. We're not gonna understand each other until we have that conversation. I found it incredibly life-giving when you give time and you tell each other stories to leave there going, hey, we disagree, but we know why we disagree. We see the point of departure and we can love each other even though we do disagree on this important issue. Uh, By the way, it wasn't just Jesus that quoted Genesis. It happens all the way through Paul in Ephesus, um, Ephesians 5. Let me quote for you here from verse 31. He says, therefore man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. We're talking again about this vision for marriage, this one flesh, this unity. Paul says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Do you see the vision's been expanded now? Your, your marriage is never gonna be just about you and the other. It's gonna be about Christ and the church. Becoming a parent, you see kids, you go, oh, the father heart of God. I understand it now. I would lay down my life for these little guys. The same way when you understand marriage, what's happening there, you go, oh, I'm understanding more about what God's like and why Christ laid down his life for his bride. This mystery is profound, but it's about Christ and the church. This is about that. If I get this, I get more about who God is and what he's like. I'm not out here tonight trying to police the world. I'm trying to show Christ followers what Jesus and Paul were meaning when they were talking about marriage here. The distinct roles that we all play when we come under submission to Christ's leadership. Men called to be servant leaders. Women called to be strong helpers. Equality, but yet difference as we come under Christ's leadership. Tim Keller has written a lot of um, great things in this. Meaning of Marriage is the one book which I recommend to anyone looking at marriage. Even if you're single, it is the best kind of framework book. There's also another um, devotional journey called Seal on the Heart, um, which takes you day by day through um, scriptures pertaining to marriage. Again, I really invest, invest in it. In the decision decade of your life, guys, invest in this stuff. And this is what Tim and Kathy Keller had to say. They said, there are all sorts of great institutions and human enterprises that the Bible doesn't address or regulate. Um, the quote should appear on the screen. And so we are free to invent them and operate them in line with the general principles for human life that the Bible gives us. Schools, universities, hospitals, businesses, wonderful things, and we're free to be creative with them. But marriage is different. As the Presbyterian Book of Common Worship says, God established marriage for the welfare and happiness of humankind. Marriage did not evolve in the late Bronze Age as a way to determine property rights. At the climax of the Genesis account of creation, which Jesus quoted and Paul quoted, we see God bringing a woman 
and a man together to unite them in marriage. The Bible begins with a wedding of Adam and Eve and ends in the book of Revelation with a wedding of Christ and the church. Marriage is God's idea. It is certainly also a human institution, so it will reflect the character of the different human cultures in which it's embedded. But the concept and roots of human marriage are in God's own action. And therefore, what the Bible says about God's design for marriage is crucial. It's crucial. So just to ask, what is your vision for marriage? How do you see it? Is it primarily about pleasure? Is it about romance? Is it about a safe harbor in troubled times? Is it about maximizing minimal rent payments? Is it about just marrying whoever you are with when you're in your mid-30s? As you kind of look at each other and go, well, I suppose you're the one. <laughs> a lack of clarity around this will hurt. A lack of a vision here will lead to confusion. Your sexual desire is too powerful to be left unexamined and I would suggest undiscipled by Christ and his views. In our marriage, the biggest danger we have is that we don't understand the depth of marriage and we settle for partnership. We settle for partnership. Like, let's just get through the day. Let's just sort this out. Let's just make life work. I won't go there if you don't go there. You're good at that. I'm good at this. And we kind of divide up life and we might be married for 40, 50 years, happily from the outside, but yet cold towards what God had in mind. And the best distinction I can use here is to use the language of contract, which is very much a partnership business language, and covenant, which is very much what God has in mind when he chose his people and when he came up with marriage. And I'm gonna use um, the former chief rabbi, Jonathan Sachs, he's passed away subsequently, but our congregation in Seapoint, we're in Maria Road, we've got the biggest Orthodox shul just down the road, and so we're reading Genesis together, you know, the rabbi and I, and we're looking at these things, looking at the, the knowledge, and, and this, this is their take on it, and I want us to pay attention to the difference, look out for it, between a contract and covenant, between partnership and marriage. So let's listen to the chief rabbi. Economics and politics are arenas of mediated principled competition for money or power, where individuals struggle to survive and beat others. But social goods like knowledge, trust, learning, friendship, and love inherently work differently. The more I share, the more I have. Social goods don't operate by the logic of scarcity and zero-sum games. So where those goods are involved, we should promote cooperation rather than competition. That cooperation can take two forms, a contract or a covenant. In a contract, two parties, each focused on personal interests, come together for a specific purpose from which both benefit for limited time. In a covenant, two people come together with a moral commitment to stay together in good and bad times for the greater good, and by doing so, are transformed. Contracts are about interest. Covenants are about identity. Contracts benefit, covenants transform. Do you see the difference? Partnership versus deep oneness. What vision do you have? Do you have a vision of male, female? Deep oneness, leaving, cleaving. Covenant over contract. Sacrificial love over self-interest. The empowerment of the Holy Spirit clean us from the inside out, caring for one another as we mutually embody Christ as a strong helper, as a, as a servant leader. Equality, but yet difference. Beautiful difference being expressed. And it not being about 
the marriage, it being about Christ and the church. That's the vision. And that's the environment that it allows other little males and females made in the image of God to come along and give expression to the goodness that is available to us. The, ki- the kingdom is at hand. That's the vision. Now, I was lucky because a few months into dating Leanne, she quite clearly shared the vision. It was in a movie called The Notebook. <laughs> now, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how many of you have watched this movie, but I have noticed a lot of little boys called Noah running around playgrounds. <laughs> and I don't think it's because of the flood. I think it's because of this movie. Noah and Ali meet each other and sparks fly. You'll see Noah is paddling a boat at this point. She's looking beautiful in his eyes. They're on Ferris reels. There's romance. There's kissing in the rain. And then it jumps to them sitting on a bench and Noah is reading the notebook. And what the notebook is, it's the story of their relationship. Because at this stage, Ali has got dementia and she can't remember a thing. And so Noah starts at the beginning of the day reading the notebook. And by about the afternoon, she says, wait a second, this story's Miller. This is our story. And their song comes on and they dance and they go to bed cuddling at night. And the next morning she wakes up and she's forgotten all about him. But no worries, he gets the notebook out and he starts reading again from the beginning. What a picture of romance. What a picture of what marriage could become. The only problem, and it's a problem, is there's a 50-year difference between the sparks flying and dementia kicking in. What do you do for those 50 years? How do you connect those dots? And you might say, Paul, that's just Leanne's vision. It's a very personal, quirky example. I say to you, no, no, no. The number one wedding song in the world, I've Googled it, I've had a look at it, Thinking Out Loud by the poet Edward Christopher Sheeran. And I'm gonna quote from his work. I'm gonna quote from his work. When your legs don't work like they used to before, and I can't sweep you off of your feet, will your mouth still remember the taste of my love? Will your eyes still smile from your cheeks? And darling, I'll be loving you till we're 70. So there's the one bookend, dementia. And baby, my heart could still fall as hard at 23. There's the spokes, the, you know, the, the sparks, the Ferris wheel, all that. There's a 40. 47 year gap there, Ed's left us with. And I'm thinking about how people fall in love in mysterious ways, maybe just the touch of a hand. Oh me, I fall in love with you every single day. How do you do it, Ed? How do you do it? How do you do it? I mean, everyone's seen it, but no one's got a clue how to achieve it. Really, we don't, and we're laughing about it, but really, it's, it's a painful thing. How do you grow old together? How do you make this? This spark kind of lasts forever. What is real in this? What, what is just a song lyric, you know? It rhymes with ways, so I'm gonna get days in there, you know? So that's the vision. Christ has a vision for us. Male, female, boom, covenant. How, how? Vision gives us the what and the why. Let's quickly look at practices. And we'll, we'll close by responding in communion and worship. So what are the practices? Uh, Ephesians 5, we looked at a little bit earlier. Um, we're gonna continue reading Paul's words to those in Ephesus. He says this, he says, be filled with the Spirit. So that's the big thing. You need inner transformation. All of us need to be transformed in this area. No matter what school you went to, whatever background, you need to be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, coming under his leadership. He's gonna determine what happens, 
Not me and my background, I'm coming under him. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. That's not women, submit to men. That's a wife, choose your husband carefully because Jesus is calling you to some things here. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, also wives should submit in everything to their husband. So choose wisely. Husbands, some words here for you. Love your wives. When you feel like it, when it's convenient, no. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to the cross all the way. No point did he stop. He laid down his life. So husbands, choose your wife carefully because you're laying down your life for her. Why? So that you might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spots or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You're laying down your life so that she can be beautiful and, and, and just set apart for God's glory. So, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. This thing of marriage is about that thing of Christ and the church. Now, to our ears today, there's some words here that just hit us. It's been like, what? Submission? What is going on here? We need to go back to the first century and walk it back to the Rondebosch today to fully understand Back in the first century, Artemis in Ephesus was the goddess. She had a massive temple. Picture Cape Town Stadium, but even bigger, massive. And she would be worshipped at a, at, a, at a temple which had prostitutes. You would offer your sacrifice, sleep um, with some, one of the prostitutes as a way of kind of glorifying this god. It was a trade and industry, hustle and bustle city. Um, we think, oh, old school first century, traditional roles. No, 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 it was, it was chaos. Work hard, play hard. Wilder than the suburbs of Rondebosch, my people. Believe it or not. And what was happening in that culture was that the view of women was, was very low. They were almost people. Uh, the Roman Empire and the Greeks had a view that women were inferior. If you were a child and you were born a girl, you might be left out, exposed to the elements and pass away because boys were really revered. Uh, husbands would marry eventually to kind of continue the line of, of inheritance and that, but we're largely within marriage told, do whatever you want outside. I just, I just want to see my line of, of children extended. And into this context, Aristotle tried to bring a bit of order and he wrote household codes. And these codes were quite simple. It said, wives, you need to listen to your husbands. Children, you need to listen to your dad. And anyone who works needs to listen to their boss. So that's just the chain of command. That's how it works. Those are the household codes. They would have been embedded in most people. And what's happening here is those household codes are being subverted on purpose. Their form is there, but they're getting twisted. It's a little bit like us singing our national anthem and towards the end, it looks like we all understand what's going on and someone says, and divided, we will fall. It's like, what? What happened? Like, that's not how it ends. Like, what are you doing? And then you suddenly go, oh, there's something happening here. You've, you've twisted something that's been around for a long time and you're showing something new. That's what's happening here. It's radical and it's there. In verse 21, this, this incredible call to being filled with the Spirit and being submitted to Christ. Equality. Suddenly, before Christ, uh, an acknowledgement that male and female, equally made in his image, are called to come under his leadership and to follow him. We're all apprentices of him. Whoa, that's different. That's not what we were hearing from Aristotle. Read a little bit further, and you notice that what 
is getting taught here is that the kingdom of God has come. Heaven and earth are united. The, the message of Christ has been lived out in the world right now, and that is that God has invaded and He's coming with a new operating system that takes root in our lives. Out goes self-centeredness, in comes His Holy Spirit, and we suddenly start having the ability and the desire to love one another, laying down our lives for one another, not only within marriage, but with our enemies and with, with people that we meet every day. And so suddenly the goal of marriage doesn't become my pleasure, my conveniences, whether I'm getting a good deal. Suddenly the goal of marriage becomes to love the other person, to lay down my life. Things like self-denial, sacrificial love, come at the center of what is happening, at the center of the practices. So husbands, can I ask you, future husbands, can I ask you, are you prepared to lay down your life as Christ laid down his life for the church? Are you, are you prepared to be a servant leader, washing the feet, doing whatever it takes to, to see your wife without blemish, without wrinkle, raised in glory, and don't think, oh, Paul, it's just one verse. No, you can go look elsewhere. You can go see how radical this message would have been at the time. Go look at the, the message to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 7, we're gonna pop it up on the screen now. It goes as follows from verse three. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. It's like, what? The husband's getting told to do something he never would have been told before. And likewise, the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body but the husband does. At that point, the boys are like, yeah, that's my verse. That's my life verse. I'm taking that one home. Verse four tattooed on my arm. But I hope they got the full verse because here's the scandalous bit. This is the, and divided they will fall kind of new twist. It says, likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Boom, mic drop. It's like, what is going on? No one has ever seen this before. This is literally the first time a new operating system is at work. Equality under God, mutual submission under God, a call to serve differently. Husbands, lay down your life as a servant leader. Wives, what are you called to do? You're called to lay down your life just like Christ did for the church as a strong helper. Right up front, can I acknowledge that this verse and this teaching has been abused by husbands who stood there and said, submit woman and, and have, have abused mentally, physically even. And can I say that leaders in this community, if, if you are finding yourself in that position, please come to us, come speak to us. Quite frankly, the, the law needs to take its course. There needs to be a defense raised for those that have been abused by incorrect teaching here. Our country does suffer from many atrocities of, of men losing the plot, quite frankly. The fatherlessness I've already mentioned. And quite frankly, women in this country and across our continent, I think are doing a heroic job of raising families alone, of caring for little ones. And I think the solution to this problem is a recovery of men properly understanding what it means to be made in the image of God and coming under the leadership of Christ in this area, laying down their lives freshly as Christ did for the church. And so that Hope is the big buckets of, of kind of the practices that are required, which is why we've got to be so thoughtful around entering into marriage. And verse, verse 31 continues. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. He really looks at this, hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. 
However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Again, husbands, can I ask you, are you owning the call of Christ to love your wife? Are you listening to her? Are you observing her? Are you valuing her? Are you encouraging her? Are you responding to her? When she's saying things, are you listening? Like <laughs> just going, okay, I hear you. Husbands, can I, can I encourage you to be famous at home? Not try and be famous on the edges where people think you're amazing and then when they get to know your closest, closest people, they're like, no, nah, they're not actually that good. Flick it around. Let the people in your inner circle be like, they are incredible. And let the outer circle be like, no, nah, we've never heard of them. Why do it the other way around? Have randoms going, woo, you're special. It just makes no sense, but yet that's something of what our self-centeredness wants to do. Women, sorry, our wives, are you owning the call of God to, to respect your husbands? Even if his way is less efficient, circuitous, hasn't been thought out, just quite frankly, disrespect doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Are you his biggest fan? Are you his biggest fan? I think if you do this, you'll just see an uplift. Leanne and I often um, just marvel at the differences. Leanne will say, oh, you know, we're connecting and, and this is so special. It's like we're sitting on the couch having tea and we're sharing our lives. This is like sex for me. And what? <laughs> it's like, you are, there's no way. It's like this. There's just, there's just, there's no category of how this could ever be that. <laughs> They're just radical differences in how she receives love and, and how I receive very different things. <laughs> also, there are a lot of talented people in this room. I'm gonna keep it quite short here, but essentially a lot of talented people in the room and there's a bit of a myth. The myth goes like this. No, relationships shouldn't take work. Shouldn't. And it's a myth because if you or a sports person, you know how much work goes into that. Musicians that are up here, you know how much work goes into that. Uh, magicians even, pulling rabbits out of hats. Pick, <laughs> pick anyone who's good at what they do, it takes effort, but yet marriage, it's like, no, 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 bro, that wouldn't be authentic. <laughs> it's, gotta, it's gotta come from here. It's like, I'm gonna do nothing. I'm gonna do nothing along these lines, you know? And you wonder why you're kind of just not going anywhere. Use the skills God's given you and plan this out. Let me give you some ideas. Leanne and I, we do something called reverse engineer life. We say, God, what does the future look like? What needs to be true today to get us there? What will it be like when Paddy goes to high school? It's gonna be the end of 2026. What, what God, have you got in store for us? What do we start doing today to start leading up to that? God, I have vision for your life. And it's incredible how that stirs you up daily to the future. And you're not planning two separate things. You're saying, God, what are you calling us to? In our relationship, Leanne has got a great phrase. You can steal it from her. It's this, it says this, are you being serious? <laughs> you know that moment when you, you've done something slightly off and, and, and are you being serious? And you got a little moment where you can go, let me think about this. <laughs> and you either go, yes, I am. And then, and, then, and then you're having the conversation or you go, no, 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 sorry. That was, that was out of line. It's just helpful because often you, the fight doesn't become about the thing, it becomes about the fight, the way you have it. And, and so this is just a little circuit breaker to really help communication. And the pre-marriage guys have a lot more on this. Thirdly, and I'm talking generally, but men, we don't get this right often, is the conversation one in which you're offering comfort or solutions? Are you listening or are you problem solving? 
get this wrong a lot. Like, yeah, 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 but just do this. It's like, ooh, no, no, no. No, no, no. Bonus points for keeping a straight face and saying, but how does that make you feel? If you can do that, you are, you are in the notebook leagues here. It's incredible how differently we're wired, but that is a big thing. Feelings rather than frustrations. Let me give you an example. The kids are all asleep. You turn around, you're so excited. You're gonna have a cup of tea chat and your spouse is on their phone. How you communicate this could be, hey man, we said no tech after eight o'clock. What are you doing on your phone, man? This is, oh, you broken the promise. Blah, blah. Frustration, just vomiting out. Or you say, hey, it's quite a vulnerable for me to say this, but how I'm feeling right now is a little neglected because we haven't had time together. And now when we do get a gap, you replying to random WhatsApps, and I'm kind of right here, yoo-hoo. And then you like start WhatsApping them, like passive aggressive moves, like, hey, you know, also in the room, you know, how about a real person? And I mean, it's just kind of dysfunctional. Rather than doing that, the frustrations, just get vulnerable and say, hey, that's actually, and then how many times in that moment, spouse goes, oh, I'm sorry, you're right. Like, let's, let's connect, let's connect. And finally, guys, because there's so many ways in which we can get this wrong, how about celebrating the wins? Just celebrating the wins. Ryan Termi taught me this. He says, you'd rub your little fingers together and you go, can you feel it? You know those moments when you're just like, oh, the sun is setting. This moment is just, yeah, oh, this is so good. This is so good. We get our kids around and say, guys, what is this? What is this? And they're like, this is a family moment. <laughs> and then we realized that was a little bit like too small. So now we go like, it's the kingdom coming or something. It's like some version of it. Okay, but guys, these are all very practical things. Guys, other people put effort into it. So should you in preparation or if you are in marriage. The final one, a tool for you is just quite simply this. If you are married, guys, before you head into the pillow tonight, how about just a 20-minute conversation, the car trip home, how about this? Four C's. What's wrong in our marriage? Cease it. Stop it. What's good? Let's celebrate that. What is confused? Like, where do we need clarity? And finally, what is missing? What can we create? Again, just have the conversation. How many people in this room are one good conversation around or away from seeing God break in? Describe feelings, not frustrations. Allow God's Holy Spirit to take place. Guys, we get, here's the bad news. We need more than all these tips and hints. Lee and I will often just look at each other and say, we love God, tech. We love each other, tech. We've got decades under the belt, tech. So why are you sabotaging this? Like, really, why? And here's the thing, when you stand in front of God and you say, I do, and you stand in front of everyone else and you say, I will, the person you're covenanting with, the person you're setting aside for the special treatment of deep unity, because they're the person who's gonna stick with you for the rest of your life, they are simultaneously the cherished person you've put aside and they're also the person who is gonna be the person you sin against more than anyone else. Your self-centeredness, your pig-headedness, your stubbornness, all the stuff you bring, they are gonna get it dumped on them more than anyone else. People in the workplace are gonna be like, what a good guy. I'm like, what? And you look at the setup and you say, God, what are you doing? You're saying, put them in this place of deep oneness and unity and you're gonna sin against them a lot. And try to puzzle that out. And that's where we can get cynical and we can say, this doesn't work. I don't know what God had in mind. And we can blame them and say like, oh, you're the problem. Most divorces that happen in South Africa happen between the, the age of five to nine years. It's the seven year itch is real. And I think it's that in that moment where you realize, this person actually is different to me. And I'm either gonna learn about that difference and work with that difference, or I'm gonna blame them and try someone else. But guess what? In seven years time in that relationship, the exact same thing is gonna happen. 
of what Philip Yancey said. He said, Puritans called marriage the little church within the church, a place to test and also develop spiritual character. I persevere in the difficult times of my marriage for the same reason I persevere in the difficult times of my faith, because I believe that both touch something of eternal significance. It's not gonna be easy, guys. It's gonna get there. It's gonna get that level. But there's, there's gold in that. Remember Rigby Wallace um, said this. He said, uh, I've never seen marriage fail. And I remember going, Rigby, this is awkward, but like, the stats show that it fails a lot. Like, what are you talking about? And he'd say, oh, no, I've never seen marriage fail. I've seen people fail marriage, but I've never seen the institution of marriage fail. This call to submission under Christ and caring for each other. I've never seen that fail. Something happens in us as we do it God's way. Philip Yancey says this, his marriage strips away the illusions about sex pounded into us daily by the media. Few of us live with oversex supermodels. We live instead with ordinary people, men and women who get bad breath, especially in the morning, body odors and unruly hair, who menstruate and experience occasional impotence, who have bad moods and embarrass us in public, who pay more attention to our children's needs than our own. We live with people who require compassion, tolerance, understanding, and an endless supply of forgiveness. And so do our partners. Such is the ironical power of sex. It lures us into a relationship that offers to teach us that we need far more than just sex or even that relationship. We need sacrificial love. And on the other side of sacrificial love is deep joy as we find out what it means to be human, what it means to be made in the image of God. Laying down our life like he did is where the true joy is found. And that's why we need right now to respond by inviting the Holy Spirit. Because on the other side of sacrificial joy, uh, sacrificial love is joy, but right here in front of your face is self-centeredness, is sin, is rebellion, is everything inside of you going, not me, don't make me do it. This doesn't look like a good deal. Remember what Paul at the start of all of this said, be filled with the Spirit. That's what verse 18 says, be filled with the Spirit. This, this is impossible without the Spirit. That's why when I chat to my colleagues at the GSP, I don't start with like, well, this is how I think marriage should be. I'm like, hey, either God's real and either He renovates you from the inside and fills you with the Spirit or He doesn't. This is how I'm living my life and this is what I've experienced. Without that, it's gonna be incredibly hard to see our sexual desires fully expressed. We're gonna come to the communion table. I'm gonna invite the band up. And I wanna quickly just describe to you why the communion table is described as a wedding feast of the Lamb. Do you know in the ancient East when Christ went and, and uh, taught, there were three stages to a wedding. Stage one, you would have to pay a price for your bride. And then typically stage two, you would spend a year building a home for her in your parents' house. Awkward, I know. So it had to be like appropriate home distance away from your folks, right? Thick walls, I don't know, there were criteria. And you needed that room to be built and it would take a year. And that's why Jesus said, hey, I'm going away and I'm preparing a room for you. He said it, I'm preparing a room for you. Each and every person that follows Christ is having a room prepared for them. And then stage three, he comes and he brings his bride. The bridegroom comes and he brings his bride. See, if you're single or married, whether you will ever be married or whether you're divorced, no matter how you find yourself here tonight, the news is that what started in the garden is ending with the wedding supper of the Lamb. He is coming. And this communion meal celebrates that feast. He's paid the price. Paid a price with his own blood. He is preparing a room. It might not feel like it, but it is in eternity with him. And he's coming again where we will be his bride 
for all eternity, celebrated, revered, cherished, washed, wrinkle-free, set aside. This whole gig around marriage is about that moment. 